We've been about this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DNI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy and the King to cover news, tips from colleagues, and host incredible guests. Listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it. Check it. Julie, kick off the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Crazy and the King. You know, I'm not exactly sure where this show is falling on our calendar of holiday uh, listening, but what we promised each and every one of our listeners is that even though Julie and I are not literally here real time, we're here. And we wanted to make it our business to give you all great voices as we ended the year. Julie, I'm, I'm asking, you know, here, here's what I have on my wish list for the holiday from you, because you are an incredible pod partner. But my ask of you as we move into 2022 is to hold me even more accountable. Let me tell you why. For the last two years, we have kind of gone through this exercise of putting a show sheet together and kind of like a programming calendar. And then that joint is always out the damn window, like <laughs> week number two of the year. We, we never follow our programming calendar ever. So I want all of you all to know, Julie and I, we are diligent about programming, saying what it is that we're going to spend time on. And then we just roll. Yep. And part of why we roll is because some of your colleagues, your cousins and the folks in your corporate quarters, they keep making the news and they make it easy for Julie and I to just find subjects instead of spending time doing research. So, Julie, I want you to try to hold me more accountable in 2022 so that we get more guests on like the incredible guests that we have today, other incredible guests that we've had this month, and that we can really focus on things like equity, education, homelessness, health care, all those other issues that are extremely important. Yes. And the last few weeks of recording all of these interviews have been like life. I mean, they've given me so much energy just to have amazing conversations and the the stature of guests that we're able to have a conversation with and the education that every one of those guests has brought to me for the last six, seven weeks um, has been wonderful. So I commit to you, my partner in this pod, to live by our programming sheet for 2022, which means we should probably, you know, start it. Yeah, no worry. So, you, you know, uh, one of the things that happened this year for me, and it really did happen this year, um, I actually went into my email signature and I took out my pronouns. And I think we talked about it in one of our episodes and the person, um, well, I won't call her name, beautiful, incredible individual, but the person who I don't want to use the word influenced, but I had a conversation with a person who said, you know, Torn, I struggle with using the pronouns because it sort of limits how a person sees me. They see me as being supportive of the LGBTQ community. They might see me for my ethnicity, my gender. But then after that, they don't see that I'm a mom. They can't gather from my pronoun usage that I'm Christian or 
you know, that I have a disability, they can't see some of the other dimensions of who I am as an individual. And so what I didn't want to do was limit how people seen me other than how they saw me. I wanted to force people to have conversation with me to know that I support the LGBTQ community, that I support the people or or, uh, the disability community, that I support Muslims or do you remember that? So yeah, 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 I, I do. took it out. So I, I found all of the conversation this year around the LGBTQIA plus community in some ways is being inspiring, informing, and in other ways, disappointing and disgusting, literally. Like I found myself more angry this year and I don't know if it has, I guess it has everything to do with not so much so the work, but this podcast adds a layer on the work that I do because it forces me every single week to read, to talk. I think I'm a bit more sensitive. I I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. I mean, ew. One, we have to think about why we do the things that we do. Um, and and two, it's easy to get bogged down in the bad because there is so much negativity that surrounds making progress in the work. And we have two steps forward and three steps back, it, it feels like, too often. Um, and so you're – but you're really good about pulling me out of the hole from from time to time when I get it. And I feel like this year I've been able to return that favor a few times to to pull you out of the hole and and focus on some positive stories, some of the things that normally I think I would kind of get into the mud about and into the mire. And we've we've worked to kind of reframe as not what is the mud, but the mud and what can we do about it. And I think that's been an important piece for you and I this year as we've grown together um and and individually yeah so uh why don't we do this why don't we uh do just a quick commercial uh i don't know 45 seconds 60 seconds whatever they stick in you know we we got to do the commercials keep the keep the lights lights on is it keep keep the the lights on on. (laughs) all right we keep the lights on keep the internet running uh let's do a quick commercial and then we'll get back uh come back to a conversation where i reached high and low it wasn't hard. It literally was an email. I know the reaching high and low makes it sound like I was really putting in some work. Nah, it was really just an email. And I got one response in five minutes. Other response was within an hour. Both of them said, yes, we're going to have a great conversation. We'll be right back. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transform, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube. All right. Welcome. Welcome back. Um, Torin, you kind of left us hanging on this email high and low. So I'm going to give you the honors here. 
Yeah, absolutely. So again, we've had a lot of conversation this year around LGBTQIA plus issues, and those issues have hit like almost every single cylinder of our community and our corporate life, our personal and our professional life. They've hit family, they've hit friends. And so, you know, Julie uh, introduced me to a saying, um, and I so appreciate Maria Towns um, from the Bristol Myers Squibb conversation. And I can't remember how she said it, but I'm gonna go with yours, Julie, for this moment. Nothing with us, without us. Did I say it right? Nothing, nothing about with, us, about us, about us, without without us. us, nothing about us, without us. And so I said, why are Julie and I talking about LGBTQ uh, issues without including people from the community? Duh. So why don't we have uh, Jennings Wynn, who's going to join us? He's over someplace in the Midwest. I'll let him tell you who he is and uh, a little bit about where he is. Matter of fact, why don't we do that right now? Jennings, introduce yourself and maybe your social media handle. Yeah, absolutely. Y'all can find me under Jennings Wynn on LinkedIn. That's what I use more than anything. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. here in Chicago. Uh, I work in the HR tech talent acquisition um, software space. Uh, I founded a number of employee resource groups, which is uh, part of how I met Torin and, and got on his Rolodex to potentially participate in things like this. Um, yeah. I grew up in the South um, and I'm really excited to have this conversation. My pronouns are he, him, and I identify as an effeminate queer man. Yeah, absolutely. And then I gassed up my internet buggy, put it up in the air, my little internet buggy drone, my internet drone buggy. Um, I, I just created something there and I shot that joint across the pond and uh, it landed in an inbox for Joanne Lockwood. Joanne, tell folks like who you are, pronouns, and I love your corporate domain. So share that too. Yes. Well, hi, everybody. And it's an absolute honour and pleasure to be invited on here today. Um, so my name is Joanne Lockwood. Uh, I use the pronouns she, her. I identify as a trans woman, binary trans. Uh, I transitioned about five or six years ago, so I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin right now. Uh, if you're seeing a, a, a photograph or a clip of me in one of the one of the shots, you'll notice that my, my hair may look a, a little bit non-feminine i've recently had a hair transplant and i'm just waiting for the the fuzz to grow back out so i hope to have luscious locks again one day we can hope someone, someone like julius would be lovely <laughs> luscious locks luscious locks i love it he's luscious locks all right got it so listen we are going to have a real and honest conversation and earlier this year back in april uh hrc the human rights uh campaign they said that 2021 was slated to become the worst year for LGBTQ state legislative attacks as unprecedented number of states here in the U.S. poised to enact record-shattering anti-LGBTQ measures and bringing that into law. Now, I don't know what has happened, Joanne, across the pond over in Europe. I don't know if you've seen uh, an abundance of activity legislatively, but I'd love for the two of you to weigh in. And of course, Julie will jump in the conversation, but I'd love for you to just kind of, before we even hit any of the subjects, just in general, how do you feel about the year of 2021? And Joanne, I'll start with you. Um, from a from a queer perspective, so I, my my focus really is UK based. I'm 
obviously I keep an eye and an ear out on what's happening your side of the pond, you know, the US, and uh, certainly what was going on under, the, under your previous administration, there's a lot of worry. But I'm also seeing worry coming from from, from your side in terms of the Illinois and other other uh, states who are enacting these legislations. So for me, that's kind of, I, it's, it's, it's unnerving because, you know, we see one of our biggest allies in the UK also having these struggles. In the UK, we had a, a debate in our parliament in 2018 where they committed to reform what, our, what we call our Gender Recognition Act, which allows transgender individuals to be able to change their birth certificate. Um, that doesn't give us much more other than the right to die as ourselves, the right to marry as ourselves, and the right to retire and, and claim our state ben, ben, pension and benefits as ourselves. You know, we can do all the other things, passports and driving licence, without that. But anyway, that stirred up a hornet's nest. And what we ended up doing is it activated a uh, a passionate, loud, well-funded group of individuals who would describe themselves as radical feminists or anti, you know, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, um, usually coined the term TERF, T-E-R-F. Um, they've become extremely motivated in the UK over the last 18 months. The mainstream media, you know, our, our Times, our Telegraph, our Guardian, our Observer, all of the mainstream media, even the trashy broadsheets, uh, the, uh, sorry, tabloids like the Daily Mail, also are, are running anti-trans or trans-negative articles on a, I would say, daily basis. If it's One of them is certainly running an article. And we've even recently seen the BBC, who we thought were the bastion of fairness and balance, publishing transphobic remarks and under the guise of balanced reporting. So that we, as a, as a trans community, if, if you like, in the UK, feel under attack on a daily basis by people who, this is not just about female rights, this is not just about family values, this is about, in some cases, wanting to see trans people have limited access to resources have lim not been recognized in law they even want to wind back our equality act to remove gender transition as a as a protected characteristic so it, it is it is quite worrying um what i'm conscious of though is that the this is a lot of noise but the public opinion still is positive so these this vocal minority um are definitely a minority but it becomes that background hum, that thing that doesn't get you can't ignore. So I do a lot of work with corporates, uh, lunch and learns, uh, trans one hundred and one sessions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm well received. You know, these large corporate global companies are really pos trans positive. They have staff networks, ERGs. Um, they have trans people represented in their organisations. So I, I know that they are trans positive. So that the background hum we get. It just becomes tiring. It impacts the mental health of trans people, mainly trans women, because their focus tends to be trans female based. Um, you know, we, we've got the same tropes uh, about restrooms and bathrooms. We've got the argument around um, trans women are really predatory men in dresses, stalking women and threats. We see the same arguments around trans youth having their bodies ruined, uh, denying them choice. We now see even hear new arguments saying that. That trans people are actually homophobic and, and lesbianphobic as well, because we're denying young children the right to be gay or the right to be lesbians by forcing them into becoming trans instead. And this is, uh, we've even had new articles quoting trans people as forcing lesbian 
identifying women as uh, forcing to have sex with trans people or they're transphobic. We've seen arguments around prisons. We've seen arguments in sport. So there's this constant barrage. It's, it's like playing whack-a-mole. Every time you think you've sorted the argument out, bang, they pop up with some other argument. You know? And I don't know how they're funded, but I suspect a lot of it is comes from maybe America. We, we look at some of the sort of uh, the, the radical Christian networks who are funding this, well-funded, well bringing that in there. I'm even hearing about these networks transferring to Australia now. I've seen a rise of anti-trans rhetoric in Australia. Uh, maybe not in, in non-English-speaking Europe, but I'm certainly seeing it in the UK and now moving to Australia. And this, these are very vocal, very well-funded. People with professor and doctor in their titles or well-known globally published authors, you know, the author of Harry Potter has become a very, a very vocal person who speaks against trans inclusion. So it's a general feeling of that mental health, that pressure, that psychological safety. We're experiencing this kind of bombardment. And yes, we can turn off of social media. We can, we can turn the dial down on Twitter. But can you turn the dial down on the BBC? Can you turn the dial down on the mainstream media that you're seeing every day? So that that's kind of how I feel as a trans person in the UK, almost with my tin helmet on all the time. Just what's going to happen next? Jennings? I'm sorry, Julie. Yeah, okay. I, I want to ask a quick question because TERF is a, a term that is relatively new to me. And as a cisgender woman, it's hard for me to understand how a trans woman or inclusion of trans women is an attack on my femalehood or my womanhood. So I don't know if you can, for our listeners, just explain a little bit more about TERF and, and what that means. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try not to venture into their territory too much and, and listen fair. to too much of their rhetoric. But for my, my interpretation is that one of the arguments they use is undermining hard-fought sex-based rights that women have fought for for generations. And by distorting statistics and services by having, as they would call it, male-bodied people identifying as women, it undermines what they hold true to believe a woman is. A woman is someone who has certain sexual characteristics, a uterus, a cervix, has uh, certain chromosomes. There's no Y chromosome in that mix. It's all XX. So the, the kind of biological elitism is kind of the basis of the argument. And that a, a trans woman is really a man, a misguided man, a man who um, dresses in women's clothing for sexual gratification or self-indulgence. So that's their kind of view. And they would describe a trans man, a, a trans masculine person, as often a, a misguided butch lesbian who should be allowed to be celebrated as a butch lesbian. And we, don't get me started on non-binary uh, identities. They, at the moment, they're so focused on trans women with an incidental notion of trans men that they haven't started tackling non-binary. And it, it's around creating division, it's about undermining the LGBTQ plus community. They're attacking our major charity called Stonewall. Um, they're, they're, they're challenging Stonewall's um, advice into, into organizations, into government. Uh, we've got lots of organizations now pulling out of Stonewall under pressure because they, they're questioning the advice they've been given. Uh, so and this, is, this is coming out of academia. This is coming out of the mainstream media. This is, coming, again, coming out of well-funded, very vocal, very well-influencing minority is a, is a minority we could probably yes. count these people 
in their tens, not thousands. There's tens of people making lots of noise on lots of channels and getting amplification. That's the tr- that's the challenge. Yeah. So it's a it's a reinforcement of the same old tropes and stereotypes that the media has engendered yeah. that that have been engendered about, especially trans women. Um, so thank you for just taking a second and and giving our listeners a little education. Jennings, twenty twenty one for you. Uh, it's been an interesting year. I, I think, uh, Joanne, you bring up a lot of really great points. The first thing that I kind of thought of listening to you is, you know, when the oppressors of marginalized persons encourage us to infight, to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, they win. And the more division within the subcategories of marginalized persons there is, the more power that minority has. And so, you know, kind of looking at the, the United States, that's my lens here, you know, in, in Chicago, you know, we have great things that have happened in 2021. You know, there's as of July, there's around a thousand LGBTQIA+. I use the term queer just because I get tired of the letters, but that's a personal preference, um, that are in some form of office. There's at least one queer person in office in every state but Mississippi, which is where I'm from. But subversively, there's all of these laws coming in, particularly around gender identity and trans youth to keep people from competing in sports, from being able to identify as, as they are and it seems very targeted that this this loud minority is really going after youth, because if they can cause problems for kids before they become adults, then they've really won to some extent. Um, you know, a good thing that we had, you know, as we've here in the U.S. issued our first uh, um, U.S. passport with non-binary as a gender. Uh, however, there are still you know many states and companies and organizations that won't acknowledge that that even exists and it is not a protected status under EEO neither is sexual identity. Um, so while we have even more representation in many ways, there's there's that backlash. You know, I, I used to nanny and lifeguard and I have a lot of you know friends who have kids and they don't think anything about someone being trans or someone identifying as queer or gay, you know, they grew up watching Glee and all of this media, and they have friends who identify that way. Uh, But it's almost as if the more comfortable general society gets with these concepts. Uh, And I even hate saying concepts, these truths, these actual genuine identities that exist, whether you want them to or not, the more frustrated the vocal minority gets, and the harder that, uh, that they try um, to, to really, really push um, I know we also just had our um, NFL had a player come out as gay. Uh, Carl, I believe his name was. Nassib. And he exists. Carl Nassib. Nassib yeah. I, I don't want to mispronounce his name. Um, and so that was, that was important. That was historic. That was great. Uh, however, just a few years earlier, there was Michael Sam who was trying to get into the NFL, a black man, and couldn't even get in because he came out before signing his contract. And the, the coverage of Michael Sam the, a few years ago was, where is he showering? How's he going to shower? Does he shower with his teammates? Locker room, locker room, locker room. It was nothing. It was just taking the identity of being a gay man and diminishing it to sex acts, which has been a trend of how the queer community is treated. You know, that's, that's where the Love is Love campaign come, came from. It was, you know, people would say, keep it in the bedroom. Well, there, there's more going on in a relationship than a bedroom. Um, and you know, that same coverage didn't happen with Carl, who was a very, you know, cis, attractive, 
white man. So I think there, there's, there's, or white appearing. I'm not sure his true ethnic background. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of layers there when it comes to what we will and won't allow um, in, in these marginalizations, submarginalizations, and in popular culture. I think there is a, a always that um, allusion to whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. Harder for Michael Sam to be accepted because he is a black man who is also gay. Easier for Carl Nassib. The, white, the whiteness of disability or the whitening of disability of LGBTQ, all of those things, uh, you know, and, and you're absolutely spot on. And, and Torn and I have talked a lot and I think disagreed a lot and had a lot of really strong conversations this year on the attacks that you mentioned around transgender legislation and primarily in the U.S. the attack against transgender women or, or youth, young women um, around sports. And I, I would like to get, I, I think, Joe, you kind of started to the point, maybe it was you, Jennings, sorry, um, of attacking early right? And attacking often. And so, you know, kind of what are your thoughts around how do we as uh, allies, abolitionists, supporters, not allow the vocal minority that is in power in the United States and so many of our state legislatures um, to continue to convey these attacks on, on transgender youth? For me, I... I- Yes, I think this is kind of the circular the circular argument that, that often occurs. You know, we took so think about sport. You know, a, a trans woman, for example, in their twenties, competing in athletics, competing in whatever their chosen discipline is, is always seen to have an advantage. Their their male part of their life, the testosterone, the muscle development, the the bones, the cartilages. Uh, the blood oxygen density of cells, all these kind of all these kind of arguments are put forward. Why trans women have an advantage in sport? And then when we say, well, if we allow our children to identify and begin their life, begin their puberty in their in their their gender that they identify with internally, then we wouldn't be breeding the next generation of of trans people who had been through male puberty or female puberty who didn't want to. And that seems to be the argument is that, you know, I always hear this argument is from the radical feminists that you can always spot a trans person, you can always tell they're trans. And, that, and maybe they see the threat of allowing people to transition in their youth, that they will go through puberty, they will develop the primary sexual characteristics and secondary characteristics, their hips, their their their, their body shape will, will will generate in a typically female way, and maybe that scares them because they when in ten years time if everyone transitions early, no one will be able to tell. At the moment, the argument works well. You can create this avatar, this demonised image of a trans woman. You know, put lipstick on, a dodgy wig, and a, and a bad dress and high heels, and say, "Look, ha ha ha! Here's a parody of a, of a woman. This is the trans woman." But when when we when we talk about everyday trans people who are just as intersectional, just as as diverse as every other woman out there. We don't fit these stereotypical tropes, the pantomime dame, the the comedic Mrs. Doubtfire image of of a woman. We're blending in. And I think this is what, this is what, for my my mind, this is what tends to scare people is when they can't tell. How do they know if they're, the woman they're sitting next to is is trans? They're worried about that. I've got to get in. 
mm-hmm. got to get in. I got to get in. I got to get in. Okay. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Joanne, you, what you're saying is that in the past, the transition has taken place a bit later in life. That if, in fact, we, one, support youth earlier, and I'm just going to throw a number out there. If we start that support when they're maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, and then they can operate freely, move, live freely as they'd prefer to be identified. If I'm hearing you correctly, let's say a trans woman. So now the young, the 10 year old boy doesn't perhaps participate in the gym as much, doesn't maybe throw as many fastballs and work on. So if I'm hearing you, you're saying that they're evolving as an individual, won't mature so much as a man. And then therefore, when they do transition to being a woman, they won't have built up all of the muscle, the man characteristics. Did I hear that correctly? No, no. I, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is that every child can throw a ball. Every child can go to the gym. Every child can work out. It's not a gendered expectation that the boys do that and girls don't. So girls are perfectly entitled to, to follow that route if they want to. What I'm saying is the impact of hormones such as testosterone which build muscle, which alter the brow shape and the bone structure, the, the way the hips develop, the way the muscles develop. So, so it's, it's, the, it's the arrival of testosterone in puberty that causes the development of male primary male characteristics. So got that's it. what so, I'm so, saying. So, remove the testosterone. So got it. So, so, and certainly not cutting you off because I want us to talk about that. So what you're suggesting is that, and Jennings, you can jump in, Jay, certainly jump in. But what you're suggesting is that in many ways, we should just, we not suggest, but we should encourage or certainly we should sign off on a 12-year-old wanting to transition, a 13, 14-year-old wanting to transition. Am I hearing that correctly? I think, no, not what, to cut you off, I think what you're saying is general, you're generalizing. I think what you're doing is, is, is simplifying a complex uh, issue. I think what I'm saying is, that we need to engage with the child. We need to engage individually with the child, look at their circumstances, look at their their own sense of self, recognize that that child may well have a mature sense of identity that is not that does not align with their gender or sex assigned at birth. And that parents and a support network should be put around that child to work with them as they grow and mature. And that may well include affirmative gender support, uh, helping them socially transition at an early age, if that is appropriate, uh, not conversion therapy, not forcing them back into the box, not, not, not disbelieving them. And then at a time when they're approaching puberty, look at whether puberty blockers, which are used worldwide for precocious puberty, whether puberty blockers could be used to pause someone's sexual development, uh, whether that's appropriate at the time, again, through monitored person-centric support, working with the family. And I'm not talking about any anything here as a scaremongering, broad brush, everybody free for all. This is a very tailored person-centric approach to that child. And then looking and evaluating all the way through their, their teenage years as to what is appropriate at each stage and putting the child's needs 
and psychological safety at the center of this, but while also recognizing that they mainly support counseling and uh, whatever that may be. So it's, it's very, very definitely working with the child at the heart, not forcing them, not influencing them, not trying to convert them, not trying to imprint our archaic values of gender onto a child. And then if it's appropriate, make take further steps as they grow older. But once you've had the first signs of puberty, the voice deepens, the muscles start developing, the beard starts growing. It takes a lot of, um, well, correction in later life to reverse those. So allowing the child not to go through that may help their mental health, may it make them more productive in society. Um, and as I say, it's not about creating this blanket, everybody free for all. This is not what I'm advocating. I'm advocating very specific targeted support for that child and the family. Let's not forget the family as well. Jennings? Yeah. Um, I, I would completely agree. One of the things that stuck out to me that you mentioned, Joanne, was the concept of uh, people being afraid of how would I know? I can always, you know, you know, clock a trans person uh, and things like that. And I think that that concept also uh, transcends many of the letters in the queer alphabet. I think that's one of the reasons why sports in many ways, whether it be the issues that are being a uh, trans youth that are being attacked now, or just even the concept of, you know, an out gay male football player, there's this idea that, you know, as a queer person, you can't do the big masculine thing. You're not supposed to, that's why, don't ask, don't tell. You can't be a brave soldier and be gay. That, that's, that's, that's for heteronormative people. We have that. You can't have that. And, and that's kind of a, a, an underlying theme, um, which, I, which I relate back to the, you know, if someone were to, as a youth, transition fully and you would never think whether they were or were not trans because they've always authentically been themselves, then how do the people who are afraid of that know what they are? And, you know, when we go into spaces like athletics, um, you know, those are, you know, sacred spaces that, you know, the, the queer people aren't supposed to be part of. That, 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 that's for another group of people. You're, you're not allowed in our clubhouse. Um, and I, th I think that that's thematic of a number of things throughout that we need you in a box. Um, we need, you know, your um, there's a great quote from The Simpsons, an, an episode years and years and years ago. And it still stands up. Homer Simpson said something to the extent of like, I like my beer cold, my homosexuals flaming. <laughs> There's just this, this box that people need to be into. Uh, and thinking outside of those boxes is extremely terrifying and intimidating to people. And, you know, some of that is reinforced with negative media images. We're at this very weird spot with media where we've got really positive images on a number of shows. There's a cartoon, I, the remake of She-Ra that I really love where there are non-binary characters and queer women and different body types, and it's not an issue. They just exist in that world as is. And then we have comedians saying really terrible things about trans people, all at the same time, all on the same streaming service. Can I just chip in now? I think the other challenge we've got here is that cis women, you know, non-trans women, are also being targeted. If we look at the, the typical testosterone levels for non-white women they are higher people from maybe an african or caribbean background people with black or brown skin tend to have higher testosterone levels so what we're starting to do now is police 
what it means to be a woman. We've got Olympics, we've got sports and athletics now saying, well, the, the maximum testosterone you can have as a person competing in this sport is four nanomoles or whatever the level is. And we're seeing cis women with higher levels now being forced to take uh, blockers. So we're now enforcing drug taking or, or hormone blockers for people to compete in sport. We, we saw Casta Semenya, who is a, a, a female who has polycystic ovaries, who produces testosterone in in uh, naturally, and she uh, was blocked from the Olympics. She's, she's been blocked from other sport. So it's not just trans women in danger here. It's also women who are maybe identified with intersex uh, or, or 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 not typically within the female range. It's all about control, how they can control the marginalized persons, whoever that category might be. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, so much of the conversation that we have here, I feel like so much ableism, uh, uh, homophobia, misogyny is all really based either in the roots of controlling people of color or controlling women. And really, when we think about how we interact with other intersectional communities is the base of it, keeping that control away from women and people of color. I feel like there's, and and this is just me kind of talking out loud now, I feel like there's so much of a root in it that we can see the intersections of all of the isms being based in cisgender white male power structure um, and how that's why I think, you know, I, I was just on a call right before this and we were talking about disability and, and intersections and all of that kind of stuff. And I think Jennings, you said it is that it's the constant division of the pie. You get under marginalized group, this piece of the pie, and we're going to keep trying to shrink it and shrink it and keep you fighting against each other so that you never, ever come together and formally say, hey, this isn't the power structure that we want anymore. We need to move beyond this. And, and I see that happening in my community. Um, and, and I think to an extent it's happening in the LGBTQ community as well, um, where everyone's trying to kind of figure out where their particular identity fits within your community and how to make sure that under marginalized or marginalized voices within your community are also heard. How are you guys kind of approaching um, how to have communications that are supportive of your community as a whole while identifying that it's okay to lift up other parts um, that haven't gotten the the full acceptance and the integration that maybe not full, that's not an appropriate statement, but the advanced integration that white men who are ho uh, homosexual have been able to do. I mean, that's Personally, a tough one. I find it extremely frustrating. I find it extremely frustrating that there is a, a kind of gay white male privilege, if you like, mm -hmm. it exists. You know, you, you look at, and again, I don't want to generalize. I don't want to cause anyone feeling that I'm trying to push back here, but you know, you see many staff networks, many ERGs, many pride networks, um, tend to be white men, white gay men, as as, as holding the power in, the, in that circle. And uh, we don't see many lesbian voices or, or trans or queer voices, or certainly people of color, um, people who are not white. We, we, we often don't see those. And it, it is frustrating. And I, and I see the same level of exclusion, if you like, or non-inclusion, rather than saying deliberate exclusion. It's, it's lack of uh, 
lack of inclusion more, where people aren't being heard, we're not looking intersectionally, we still have this kind of myth that gay people can't be be disabled, gay people can't be in, in a wheelchair. You go, Ooh, how can you be gay? You're, you're in a wheelchair. And it is, there's still this amazement around, we see you have to be able-bodied, you have to be white to get acceptance. And, and, that, and I, I don't have an answer. I, I, I'm just acknowledging the fact that, uh, yes, it does exist. Yeah. I can talk about how I personally dealt with it because I am, for all intents and purposes, on paper, that privileged cis white gay man. I have a degree. I have a decent job. I'm six foot tall. I'm very Aryan looking. I do a lot of diversity work um, as much as I can. And I have a seat at the table that other people in my community don't. Persons who are black and brown or trans or, uh, you know, disabled. Uh, you know, I, I am that kind of box. Uh, personally, what I've chosen to do, and I, I don't know how to replicate this, and I certainly am not looking for a sticker or a cookie, is to realize that I do have that seat and I do have privilege and power and to reach back and reach in front of and reach beside to help amplify the voices around me. My, my personal philosophy is, you know, if I have a seat at the table and I don't take it, chances are that group is not going to give it to somebody else. They're going to give it to another oppressor. So if I can take that seat, if I'm the only person that is going to get that seat at that time, then it's, it's my obligation to take it, but to bring other chairs with me until such a time that I'm not always the gateway, that I'm not always the amuse-bouche of diversity, as, as I like to joke. You know, I'm, I'm the, the appetizer. I'm palatable, and I can bring hard topics to boardrooms and CEOs as a concept. But then it's, it's my duty not to assume I know everything, assume I'm the expert, and get the person in who can really tell their truth. Jennings, you said something um, about 20, 25 minutes back. You, you said rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, I, I, would, I would hope that as you all are out listening to this episode, um, I would hope that in your mind, you are willing to rearrange the deck chairs on your personal and professional Titanic, that you would sit differently with the information and the sharing that took place, the story, the perspective that was given by Joanne and given by Jennings. I would hope that you would be most willing to be honest and rearrange those deck chairs in a way that is promising, aspirational, and beautiful. We could have talked for another hour. Like we literally could go for another hour. But what I want to do now is I'd love to get, you know, your contribution as we close out the year. Um, her voice. We we try to amplify women that are doing things, um, doing things that we feel are significant. And so we wanted to turn that over to the both of you. And so Jennings, I would love for you to go first. Who would you like to amplify in this episode's Her Voice installation? I would like to amplify my grandmother, Irene, um, Irene Revis, who passed away this year. She, uh, we shared a birthday. And even from a very, very young age, she could not have cared less about my identity, that I liked to play with dolls. Uh, I even asked for a pink birthday cake one year and I couldn't get one. Um, and she made one for me and said, when my mom was like, we don't need another cake. She just said, that's not his cake, it's mine. And she put a little pink My Little Pony on it in the, the mid 80s. And she was didn't have running water until her 30s, very country woman. 
strong and proud and loved me authentically for who I was without question. I remember sitting with Bill Borman in England and the first time he shared the name of Joanne Lockwood. And we went into a conversation that was a bit deeper over breakfast around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And so, Joanne, when we prepared for today's episode, you said your friends call you Joe. I'd like to take this moment and say, Joe, who would you like to share in this uh, episode's installation of Her Voice? Thanks, Torian. I I remember meeting on a stage in San Francisco uh, for the Smart Recruiters. I think that's the first time I met, and I, I would consider you my friend as well. So I'd like to shout out to my daughter, the reason I, I want to talk about my daughter is that when I transitioned about four or five years ago, my daughter really struggled. She had a huge anxiety. She she missed her dad. She missed what dad looked like. She had this mental image of who I was. And so much so that she cut me off for best part of two and a half, three years. Even blocking me from her wedding, from social media, she wouldn't talk to me, she wouldn't acknowledge me. I was instructed never to send her a birthday card. And she went as far as I was effectively dead to her. So I, I was pretty down, I was pretty low. Something traumatic happened in her life, which I, I'm deeply sad about, but it triggered her to want her dad in her life. And that was about 18 months ago. And from that point forward, I remember we met for the first time. It was like we had, we'd never not met. It was kind of like we, we were just carrying on. We'd pressed pause for two and a half years. And I was able to give her away at a wedding on the 3rd of July this year. I, I walked down the aisle. I gave the, the father of the bride speech. And I celebrate every time I'm with her because she makes me feel special. She reminds me of the power and the value of family. Also, the, also the, the time is a great healer and that with dialogue, with talking and letting people have space, you can you can heal a lot of what you would believe are unsolvable problems. So all power to my daughter. She's a fantastic, powerful woman and she's got a great career and life ahead of her. Julie, what an incredible 2021. Like this right here, when we decided that we would end the year with the voices of others, I knew it would be good. I just didn't know it would be this good. It's this good. Yeah, I didn't know it would be this good. So um, I got to say thank you to the both of you, Joanne Lockwood, uh, to Jennings Wynn. Uh, I just appreciate your sharing with us uh, on today. I, I, I can't say it any better than, than Jennings did. Rearrange the deck chairs on your Titanic. Julie and I say we absolutely appreciate each and every one of you. We want you to enjoy the remainder of the holiday season. We promise you that we are going to keep our nose down, our eyes up, and we are going to continue to bring compelling and incredible voices to Crazy and the King. You owe it to everyone in your social tribe to share our podcast with them. Like, I don't give a fuck what else you share. I know you owe it to everyone to share Crazy and the King with your entire listening audience. Because Julie and I are the absolute truth. For now, we are Ghost. See ya.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.